Brought to you by BedroomBattlefields.com, this is the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. Gav Thorpe, Thomas Perrinen and now Andy Chambers. I can't promise we'll keep this up, but let's just enjoy it while it lasts, eh? First question, Andy then, why does he think this hobby still exists? Because people like doing things with their hands is, I think, at the heart of it all. Um, Ever since I started working in the 1990s, um, people have been predicting that digital video games, etc., would just edge out. Uh, all of the tabletop market, tabletop games, modeling, miniatures, all that kind of stuff. What you can do it better on a computer. But the fact is that there's something intensely satisfying about doing it for yourself and doing it physically with your own fingers, whether it's gluing things together or painting them or pushing them around the tabletop. There's a physicality to it that I think really appeals to us on a fundamental level, and that doesn't seem to have gone away. If anything, it's kind of intensified as the other media's got better. And, and more, literally, you know, I can have armies and paint them digitally in minutes. Why would I bother sticking them together? Um, because it's not really about that. It's not just about the having them. It's also the journey to getting them. And anybody who's, who's like, built an army or even a single miniature knows that there's a personal sort of level of personal investment that you put into it in the act of putting it together, painting it, imagining it to be yours. And I don't think... That's gone away. If, as I say, if anything, it's got stronger for us over time. So I think that's why the hobby still exists. What's your favourite book of all time? I have many favourite books. Is the truth that I mean, if you if you're going to like pin me down and torture me and say name one favourite book, Andy, it would probably have to be Lord of the Rings, rather boringly, but it is that kind of like central fountainhead um, of fantasy fiction if you will i mean it's not the only by any means and it's not the first and it's not the last by any means either but it's such a towering and titanic thing in its own right I'm really overselling it here aren't i but i'd go for lord of the rings but as i say i really wouldn't like to say that's my favorite book uh, as a as an exclusive thing because there's a lot of books that i really love just a bonus question what age were you when you first read that book or those books Lord of the Rings, we were on holiday in Wales. I think I was, no, older, 11, I think. Um, So, you know, reasonably advanced, and I could understand everything that's in there. Um, But, yeah, I was absolutely fascinated. I did nothing else but but read the the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, while we were away on holiday. Uh, And, I mean, I've been introduced to The Hobbit, Years before at junior school, one of our uh, teachers there like read as part of the Hobbit, but with the riddling specifically, uh, and I'd read the the whole book separately then, so I kind of had some grounding already. Um, but yeah, yeah, Nazgul in the Shire and all that sort of thing. Woo! It was great stuff. Who or what is your biggest inspiration in what you do? I think we'll have to say Jervis Johnson for that, actually. Having um, worked with him a bit more again recently for the first time in like 20 years. And honestly, the, the sensation of familiarity, of a yin and a yang locking together in the world of games design, um, he, he's, he's always really inspired me by his 
approach to game design is thoughtfulness uh, and openness as well about it. So I've always kind of aspired to that as an inspirational sort of like, he is the one to follow. That will really embarrass me saying him, my, my saying that. We should get him on here, actually. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, did, did he ever beat you in a game, ever? Many times, many times. Um, we, we talked about this because it kind of bothered him after a while that uh, it never even crossed my mind because we used to play a lot, um, virtually daily uh, when we could, um, but not always, but certainly weekly. And we did the first few battle reports and it, it kind of became a thing. They were very, very popular. Uh, this is in White Dwarf magazine for people just tuning in. And they were very popular, so it was like, brilliant, do more of those. People love them. And we're like, all right. So we start, started regularly doing a battle report for White Dwarf in uh, once a month. And it never even crossed my mind because, I say, we played a lot, and Jervis generally beat me. Not always, but quite often. Uh, he always came with a, a good army list and a good plan in mind. And uh, yeah, I never had a plan. I just had an army and let chaos reign and work from there, basically. But after a while, he came to me and sort of said, oh, you know, it, it bothered me for a while that you always beat me in the battle reports, but I, I'm over it now. And I, it, it never even crossed my mind before that moment, frankly, that that was happening. And I was like, huh. And it made me think about it, why that happened. And it's because the battle reports were always really chaotic affairs because we had to stop and start. We had to take photos. We had to take notes. People would wander by all the time and like, give their sage advice to what we should be doing in the game and all this sort of stuff. And then we'd break for lunch. We'd come back and finish. So it was a hugely fractured game that we had to play in practice. Uh, and, of course, that worked for me because i thrive on chaos basically and i didn't really have a plan in the first place i'm just sort of like taking advantage of what's happening and doing sensible things whereas jervis came in with a plan and the plan kind of always fell apart because he couldn't keep concentration on that as well as keep notes and well as take photos and all the and all the other interruptions and stuff like that so i think that's what screwed him over more than anything else as well as just luck as well i tend to be quite lucky on the dice um so we ended up with this thing where it's like, you know, people with T-shirts on saying Jervis Johnson couldn't beat me either and stuff like this, which was all very hilarious, but a bit harsh on him because honestly, no, he's a great player. He beat me all the time, just not in a battle report because extraneous circumstances meant that I was better at doing those than he was, um, but not through talent or anything like that, just through, as I say, I thrive on chaos. And that's true when I game in general. I don't generally have a plan. What's your best value budget hobby purchase of less than £20? Paint and brushes is is what I'd invest £20 in, which won't go an awful long way these days. But honestly, good paint and a good brush are 70%, 80% of, of painting a miniature well, in my opinion, uh, with some of the remainder of good undercoat, actually, as well. Um, and if you haven't got good ones of those, it does make your life so much harder and it's, it's so much more of a disappointing experience. Um, so I feel they're the things that give back the most in terms of investing in, putting money into it, rather than any you know magnifier or some special bit of kit like that, uh, which you can pick up that cheaply sometimes. I can never get on with them personally. But yeah, put it into some decent materials is really what it comes down to because they will pay off. They are so much nicer to use, especially modern uh, acrylic paints. Are just amazing. 
I started off um, when I was a nipper. You know, we were using Humbrol paints, um, so they're like basically little oil paints and things like this. I'm to use white spirits with it and stuff like that. So the modern sort of like water soluble paints are just stunning. Um, I haven't got into airbrushing. I kind of mean to at some point. You probably need more than twenty quid for that. But um, from what I'm seeing, are the results people are getting with the again with the the modern airbrushing airbrushes and more to the point paint you can get for them uh, are very very good so but uh, at a fundamental paint brushes mate that'll pay off don't worry if you could live in any historical period where when and why i wouldn't go far uh, I, I'm, I'm a great student of history as anybody who knows me will tell you and um, i've read a great deal about history admittedly mostly military history but that's social history as well and i have to say uh, I, I'd like if I was going to go back, I'd go back like, to the 1990s or the 1980s, perhaps, and not really any further than that, because life was not better in those days, except for a very select few who, you know, wrote books about it and things like that that we get to read now. But for the vast majority of people, no, we we live like gods as far as they're concerned, and I'd rather keep hold of that than take my chances and go back in time and like, are you an aristocrat? Do you get tuberculosis <laughs> and so on? Yeah, get a sword in the gut within 24 hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, smallpox, you know, all kinds of fun ways to meet your end uh, and not much help to be had for them as well in comparison to the modern world. So, yeah, yeah, I'm a great student of history, but I have no particular desire to live in it. Do you think there are any underutilised settings or periods in tabletop gaming? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, uh, the the ancient world, the truly ancient world, as in Assyrian Empire, Egypt, Hittites, and so on. I think that's underutilized because um, people assume it's I don't know too basic, just guys in nappies with sticks or something like that. And it's not. It's not at all like that. It's actually a very sophisticated period of history. We just don't know an awful lot about it. Um, but I feel that that doesn't see enough. Um, because it, it's it's proper like Conan esque fantasy when you get down to it, uh, and that doesn't see it, it, enough leverage. I think you know the whole cradle of civilization, Babylon, all that sort of stuff, uh, which are, are some you know evocative terms just to throw around, just to say those words. So I think that gets underutilized. What might people be surprised to hear that you're not very good at? Oh, this is the one when I briefly looked over your list of questions earlier on that actually stood out in my mind of like when I thought about different answers for this. Things I'm not very good at, there's a lot of these, uh, which may probably not surprise most people. One that might surprise people I'm not good at is I'm not good at chess. Uh, I'm not good at playing chess. I Obviously, I understand how to play. I have played many times. I am not good at it. <laughs> and I think it's because of what I said earlier on, is I kind of thrive on chaos uh, when I'm gaming, and there isn't any of that in chess at all. And I like the patience to be able to develop a plan over a period of time. I've, I've had a few rounds with Go as well, which is, again, a, a fascinating concept of a game, but kind of not for me is what it boils down to, and I accept that. I, I don't thrive on long-term building towards a plan in that way uh, in my gaming, but that's okay. As I've come to realize there are many different kinds of gamers. There are many different kinds of games. It's finding the ones that suit you really so yeah that's my first one um things i'm not good at the other one i would actually list is that i can't run to save my life despite the fitness thing that we talked about briefly earlier on i'm 
decently fit, but I've always had asthma and I've also got a duff leg from a motorcycle accident and a smoke. So if the zombies come for me, they're going to get me. I won't get a hundred yards basically. So they were the two things that came to mind about things I am not good at. What have you recently changed your mind about? Nothing immediately jumps to mind, but maybe that's just the course of things. I don't know. I'm going to have to, yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say Russia. Something I've changed my life. I've always kind of like admired Russia, uh, say, student of history, Second World War, stuff like that, and accepted, yeah, they're dreadful crimes and so forth, but the resisted invasion and, you know, saved us from the Nazis and so forth. So I've kind of like batted in their corner to a large extent over the years, but unfortunately the, the Ukraine war and stuff has maybe take a rather different view about Russia, like, oh, maybe all the bad things that are said about them are true. and It's not just Western propaganda. Although, on the other hand, that's all we're getting on the Ukraine war. So, um, yeah, that that is something, though, I've kind of had to have a little heart-to-heart with myself about how I feel about that thing now. I don't know. It makes me unhappy to think about that. When was the last time something in the hobby surprised you? The success of a Masters of the Universe um, board miniatures game that Archon did. <laughs> That's, that apparently has landed really, really well. And I guess, I don't know why I imagine Masters of the Universe wouldn't cut the mustard in some fashion. But I think um, one of the things that's been remarkable, actually, that surprised me in general, uh, if I'm honest, but over a period of decades is how fast and furious games come out now compared to when I started out because it it was a a long, tedious process to make games back then. And it's become, you know, this is not to denigrate what's being made now because it's marvellous content. There's just so much more of it. And it's because digital publishing um, and print and particularly now digital miniature making has really accelerated the process just massively. And you can't imagine how fast it is compared to what an old, doddling grognard type like me is used to so that i think uh at its heart you know if i trace back from old oh, master of the universe tabletop game it's, it's like it's because of that and that now can reach the point where we do a master of the universe tabletop game or gi joe or whatever just for funsies basically because it's possible it doesn't have to be this this massive uh, industrial investment process to get to that point between kickstarter and the aforementioned capabilities small studios can do just about anything so in so on some levels the games that come out all the time kind of surprise me because it's like what and it's like and they often do quite well it's like well we'll pay our two of them really tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on i think and it's heart, it'll be that desire for randomness. Because uh, people often rail against randomness, luck, being a part of their games. Uh, whereas I think of it myself as being an essential ingredient in a game. Uh, like I say, we go back to things like chess and go, I'm kind of like, all right, it doesn't fire me uh, in quite the same way. That being said, how you handle it in your games, um, obviously key to whether it just feels like random chance or whether you have some control over what's going on and how much control and how much the fatal finger of fate can fuck you as well so that would probably be the biggest bone of contention i can think of on a a really meta level that most people might have with me and designing games the way i do Uh, but tough that's the way i do it 
you know, don't like it, go design your own games, which people do, which is fantastic. Um, it's one of the things I've had to accept about myself is I design the way I design. And um, some people like that and some people don't. But that's okay. <laughs> Tell me something you once believed about the hobby that turned out not to be true. One thing I used to believe about the hobby that turned out not to be true, uh, I go, you go, systems are good. Which, I don't know, on, on some fundamental level, I kind of sort of believe that, but I used to passionately believe it and, and fight back against every um, attempt to do other things. Because I thought it was good for you to be able to use your whole army and, you know, work to a plan, ironically enough. Um, and then the opponent used theirs. But actually, in practice, most of the time, it's it's a bad idea because it, it kind of disassociates one person at a time from having much of an active role in the game for too long. And as I've got older and perhaps a little bit wiser, I've realized that's important. You've got two people at the table. You need to make sure they're both having a good time, two or more people at the table. And you need to make sure they're both having a good time uh, on a reasonable sort of tempo. And I go, you go off and fights against that, unless it's such a limited number of units that you know you can get through your turn very quickly, or the increments are really tiny, or both. So there, there are circumstances where you still do it, but am I as committed to it as I once was? No, I am not. Uh, a lot of crunch, actually, to be fair. That I. I inflicted on gamers back in uh, the 90s when I was working on things like 40k um, these days I wouldn't do that now because you know crunch by which I mean you know, lots of modifiers, lots of die rolling comparing die rolling uh, having to do maths in relation to your dice and things like that, it was something I just didn't hesitate about back then I just thought, oh cool different way of doing things uh, and that in itself as well too many different ways of doing things these are all kind of bad actually as part of a design you need to um, be a lot more disciplined about it and I mean referencing back to Jervis again that's one of the reasons things I admire him for he is very disciplined about factors like that and considering it properly uh, which is something I've learned to do over time but I didn't used to sorry about that guys it was kind of made fun wacky games though I'll give it that much. Are there any common hobby myths and misconceptions that make you roll your eyes? The way people treat dice as if they, they will follow probabilities when uh, I'm going to tell you guys after 30 years of working with dice, they don't. You know, you, you can make some broad assumptions about what may be possible by doing that, but don't get too locked into the idea that the handful of dice you roll over the course of the game will somehow... Uh, fit in with probability that's worked out over thousands of instances thousands and thousands of instances to get that sort of like perfect bell curve or what have you you pick up your dice once in the game and roll them the dice don't know anything about bell curves they'll just give you something entirely random <laughs> and you know over time the probabilities will tend to emerge in a general direction of the way that you know those probabilities would tell you but um, only by rolling enough dice and they don't always obey those probabilities at all so that's the thing that makes me roll my eyes the most that people make such massive assumptions about a 16 percent difference for example the classics of hitting on a three plus or hitting on a four plus and how much difference that makes 
it's like it makes way more difference how many dice you're rolling guys way more um so that sort of stuff um is the thing that i tend to like because eh, it just gets treated as such an iron cast rule and what particularly amused me though there was a great what was it on it was on daka daka i think years ago now somebody had um tested different dice there they, it was a guy who taught engineering students and, and basically he'd got hold of a few thousand um, like Games Workshop dice and casino dice and things like that and he tested them to see what they rolled set it as a job for his students so they got big shaker tables and they just went through and recorded the results and he found that the chances on um, it was specifically the, the, the standard like little white D6 that you get in Games Workshop games common around the world that one is that's why it's in there the chances of rolling a one on that was somewhere around 23%. Now, technically, it should be 16. So some things are missed there. Uh, the best ones he found were the casino dice, uh, ironically enough. And they were actually, you know, within the proper odds of probability, but even they varied a bit. So even that, you know, you can take statistical probability at face value and so forth, but it still doesn't necessarily apply to the tools that you're using. So that end of thing, that's what I think people tend to blow past a little bit when they're, they're talking about balance uh, and, you know, probability chances of things happening or not happening. It's not quite in the realm of everything's just a coin flip, really, guys, but it, it's, it's kind of headed there, more so than most people give it credit for, anyway. It's been one of the fun things about Xeogenesis, actually, it's, that uses D10s. Now, I've had, like I say, 30-year career of designing almost exclusively with D6s all that time. I have a long, intimate relationship with the D6 in all kinds of different forms. And moving to D10s was just like madness, madness personified. We're using D10 dice pools. Um, and, I mean, D6s, like I say, they're a lot more unpredictable than you think they are. But they, 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 they kind of have their parameters. If you roll enough of them, they'll, they'll generally, etc. D10s is like starting over again. So that, that's been exciting times, grappling with how truly random rolling like four or five D10s can be, because we're not totaling scores. It's individual target numbers. You know, The model has a target number to hit it, so you try to roll that or above. So roll me five D10 and tell me how many of them are eight plus. It's like, oh, none of them. Oh, all of them. Oh, most of them. Just, oof. so that's been good to account for overall, a new challenge. Our question of the month for May 2024 is, what rules have you created or adapted to improve your favourite gaming system? This might be a homebrew rule or something you've ported over from another game. The point is, you tried it, it worked well, and you kept on using it. Head on over to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail to submit your answer. That's bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail. And now, back to the show. Are there any particularly satisfying mechanics you've either created yourself or came across whilst playing someone else's game? Oh, I'm going to nominate myself for this one actually, the blast marker mechanic um, that we introduced in Epic initially, I think. Which is just thing about having little explosion markers next to a unit 
to show, and it, it's it's another stage of damage at its heart. Um, but it's not removing models. Uh, it's just showing that they're kind of like being suppressed under fire, that sort of a thing. And it's been used in a, quite a few different game systems since then. I've used it a few times myself since then. And it's a good mechanic. It's a useful tool to have when you're designing a game to have that other stage of damage, which isn't actually killing things or knocking off hit points per se. Uh, basically like a temporary damage source, which suppresses them or whatever. Uh, so conceptually, I think that's that's a good one. Um, the other one I'd nominate is the system that I use in Blood Red Skies um, for doing three-dimensional combat with because that's a world war ii fighter combat game but it doesn't use altitude or anything like that it uses this uh, the system i call the advantage system where it says we don't care about how high up you are basically it's like are you at an advantage relative to the fight are you neutral relative to the fight or are you disadvantaged relative to the fight being advantaged means that uh, you you have more options basically being disadvantaged means you have less and it's only if you're disadvantaged you're actually in danger of being shot down. Until that point, you know, you, you're just looking and diving along with everybody else, but in a disadvantaged state, that's where you're most vulnerable as well. So again, it, it's a way of almost combining damage with other factors at the same time, but without it actually being damaged to the units. So I think that's another particularly kind of interesting example of almost the same, if, again, if you go on a very meta-level conceptual design mechanic applied in a different way what are the last couple of games you've actually played slip runners which is a game i'm developing for the zeo genesis universe which is we're starting to roll it out we were appeared at a few shows and things like that it's basically like a anime inspired mecha based combat game but slip runners is actually a spaceship game that i forced onto it because we're um going to publish it through blaster magazine they publish periodically and um they do little games and it's it's literally like a, a spaceship racing game but we've tied it into the background for the universe so i've been testing that quite a lot that, that's the the last few games i've actually had have all been of that um and before that was zeo genesis itself the the mecha combat game sorry they're not mecha they're not that big the the giant armored suit fighting combat game that we're doing um, which is very familiar territory. It's like, you know, 32 mil figures. So that that's kind of like you, that's the, a tactical, which is the smallest armored suits. And they go up from there, basically. But we must be fighting with uh, tacticals and mediums so far. And I've been working on that with uh, Gav Thorpe, who's uh, doing the background side of things as well. So, yeah, we've been playing a fair bit of that as well in, on the tabletop realm when building a regiment do you prefer monopose or multipose miniatures it depends on the troops and it depends on the game is the the, the honest truth of that i mean the, there's some where monopose is is absolutely right you know if you're doing pikemen or something like that you don't want multi-part models for that um but if i'm doing you know a war band of some description whatever description, whatever flavor you want to call it, then yeah, I want multiple figures. So yeah, depends on the troop type is the the response to that one. Yeah, mo- monopose zombies, that would look a bit weird, wouldn't it? Well, the same yeah, exactly. Guy. You're entirely <laughs> missing the point with monopose zombies. Um, you know, 
especially with plastic miniatures, which I love. Part of the fun is, you know, cutting them around and making them your own. So, um, yeah. But on the other hand, like I say, if I'm doing, a, you know, a very regimented kind of a unit, then I've got no problem with them being in regimental poses at all. It depends on what it is. As a rule, I prefer multi-part. It's actually, uh, I mean, I was talking about zeogenesis. That's one of the things for it is that we were doing injection molded plastic and trying to make them a bit more, you know, flexible, poseable, choose your own weapons, choose your own bits to go on them uh, for part of that fun modeling aspect of it because it, it's kind of started to vanish a little bit. And I'm, I'm sad about that because for me, that's very much part of the hobby. That's like making things your own. So uh, it's good to be in a position to hopefully give some of that back again. Do you prefer metal, resin, or plastic? I pick plastic every time. If I can have all my needs supplied in plastic, I'll take it in plastic things because it's the easiest to work with out of all three of those. Um, I don't have anything against metal miniatures. I don't have anything against resin miniatures either. But if I have the option, then uh, yeah, because plastic is just hilarious easy to cut up and stick back together in different forms and stuff like that. I mean, I used to do it with metal. Because as far as I was saying, again, because I'm ancient, super glue has been quite the wonder for me and hot glue guns. It's like, ha ha, you can't stop me now. Um, but if you're using plastic, you, you get away from 90% of that issue straight away. You know, you can just so easily put things together, so easily you know, shave off any bits of flash that you don't want and all the rest of it that uh, is obviously it's a joy to work with. Do you prefer a black, white, or zenithal undercoat? It depends what's going to go onto it next. Um, if it's bright colours, I always use white. If it's darker colours, I'm fine using black. I mean, I used to use black undercoat forever. It was always what I used to use. Uh, and then just kind of work up from there. Because I say, I came from a background where originally I was painting in Humbrol, so... Uh, black undercoat wasn't such an issue there. It is more of an issue for acrylic paints, though. So what I've actually landed up is I tend to use grey quite a lot now um, because that's a, a middle ground between the two. You know, you can darken it down easily enough um, or bring it up easily enough without having to go through quite as many layers as uh, using a black undercoat. So I feel like that's a, a fairly happy compromise. Do you have a... a typical basin strategy do you like the golf course or do you like them to be busy with rocks and skulls and yeah somewhere between the two I, I do believe that a base can be too busy um and then it starts to distract from the miniature that's standing on it so to me you know the miniature is the star not the base so i, I don't like um overly complicated bases um a lot of people have ones that are like metal grids and things like that. I don't tend to like things like that uh, unless it's specifically for an environment where that's entirely appropriate sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm not fond of guys who look like they're lugging around a load of stuff on their base onto the battlefield. It should disappear as much as possible as far as I'm concerned. Do you have any advice for those who want to follow your path? Yes, I get asked this reasonably often, actually. The biggest thing is do it. Don't don't be too hesitant. There is a just a monster mash of opportunity out there now. Uh, in some ways, it's a lot it's a lot easier and it's a lot harder than when I started out. Because when I started out, there were very 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 few companies 
making games and they were all companies. Uh, so getting a foot in the door there and working your way up and la la la, as I did, that that's I say both harder and easier to do now because there are more companies doing that. But at the same time, there's more people aware and more people interested in it. There's a whole generation basically that's been fired up by the idea of doing games and gaming and has much better tools for doing it with uh, than when I started out. But that being said, you have much better tools for doing it with. So write your rules, stick them on a PDF, put them, on, put them out on the internet, you know, find supportive groups where they're interested in similar things. Social media has given this amazing, amazing capability of like linking people across the world in a way that we just couldn't even dream of back then. So, you know, leverage that. And, you know, if you make it, they will come over time. And either someone will pop up and say, hey, I can make miniatures. Do you want me to make miniatures for your game? We should try and do this. And you can start cobbling it together that way. Or you can take it to a company and say, look, I've done these things already. Give me a go. I can work with you guys, etc." So I think the opportunity is out there. But the, the biggest thing has got to be to do it. Don't Don't think about doing it, but do it. That can be tougher than it sounds i understand that and finally what are you working on right now and is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener well i i, I slipped this in earlier on uh, i'm working on a anime inspired armored suit fighting combat game called zeogenesis for a company called best hobby in america at the moment been working on that for a couple of years now and we have a, a playtest option you can go and get the playtest rules right now. You go on zeogenesis.com or besthobby.com. You'll find like links there to, to sign up for the playtest list, and you can download uh, like an alpha version of the rules that we're, we're actively seeking playtesters for at the moment. So basically, it's 32 mil. Um, if you imagine um, the dudes are 32 mil, right? Little guys running around. The armored suits themselves are like 65 mil tall, up to. 80, 90, more. And it very much re- re- resolves around the, the idea that the uh, the armoured suits, what we call Zeo forms, are the stars of the show. And the smaller guys are like support units for them. So it'll be drones or mechanics or snipers or what have you. So the model count on the game overall is quite small. Um, but it, say, it emphasises the larger guys. And it's quite a dynamic game. We don't, we don't have clumpy slow dreadnought like things you know they're fast they're fast and uh, have a lot of guns on them so i'm particularly excited because uh, we've got a video game coming out called armored core 6 uh, later this month which is a big the armored core series has been a big inspiration for us um in doing zeogenesis along with things like apple seed so that's the big thing uh and we're looking to do I'd previously told people we weren't doing Kickstarter for this, but apparently we are because it's good for mailing lists. So later this year, early next year, maybe uh, Kickstarter for it. But we're working on injection molded plastic miniatures for that, which is uh, even in these days of like modernity is still a process to get your head around, let me tell you. Uh, so that's very good. In the intervening time, and uh, kind of related to Zeogenesis because it's set in the same universe, um, I mentioned I'm doing a spaceship racing game. Well, spaceship game. It just happens that in this scenario you happen to be racing called Slip Runners, which will get published in Blaster magazine uh, later this year as well. Just finishing up that now. 
which was a, a, a twin challenge mechanic for me of using two mechanics I hate in the same game. Which has been good. It's worked out. It's actually quite a good little game. Massive thanks to Andy there. Just a lovely, lovely guy, as I'm sure you'll agree. And a wee bit of bonus content now. Before we started recording with the main questions, we were talking a wee bit about Thomas Pirinan being over in Nottingham, meeting up with everyone, and how it sounded like he was summoned by John Blanche. It was very like, you know, getting yeah. this call from like mythical Across figure. Across the sea, come yeah. and see me, Thomas. Well, to be fair, he'd been talking about it for a while. Um, that he he really wanted to come back over to Nottingham and catch up with all those old duddery types that he used to work at Games Workshop with us. Um, <laughs> so, and I mean, I've I've been working with him on and off um, over the last ten years or so mm. on different things as well. So I've been in touch with him, been over to Finland a few times myself, which is beautiful. Yeah, he's going out to Helsinki. So he's a great guy, really great guy. Did you get out for a beer or that or? Uh, yeah, we went out and did lunch in Nottingham, um, and then he came over on the Thursday, and we went out. There's a there's a local restaurant that's quite famous called Mister Man's. It's a famous Chinese restaurant uh, close to where I live in Nottingham, uh, which is set on the edge of Woolton Park, which is a big deer park. Um, just sort of like weird. It's it's an old aristocrats, literally. You know, it's Woolton Hall. It's it's where they filmed Batman a few times. It's been stately Wayne Manor in the background of Batman in a few movies, yeah. the Christopher Nolan movies. So it's a very posh, sort of like country house type thing, and surrounding beautifully manicured park, uh, which still has deer in it, uh, which has been maintained as now, of course public property thank you comrades so we went for a walk around in that which was really nice beautiful english you know sunlight slanting through the trees little fawns running around in the grass kind of like very nice it was like Lovely perfect really. yeah he was talking about exercise too he was talking about uh, he's i don't know if you did it this time but he was talking about you used to go to the gym oh yes uh, together yeah no i've just been out today actually with my trainer uh working out yeah when we were um when we moved sites um, from the studio where we were kind of like, it was just the studio and the factory and everything was different for games workshop is often a different place, but it all came together on a single site um, in 99, I want to say, or was it 97? Anyway, so we moved on there and which was horrible, but on the bright side, it had like a, a small, you know, works gym on there and, Thomas was still working with us at the time, and he, he got me and Jez and Robin, actually, to all um, start going down the gym, um, which I'd never done before in my life. I've always been, been a kind of like asthmatic, sickly kid, so I was convinced I wouldn't be good at anything like that. But he, he made such a good case for it overall, and it was something different to do because we, we, we live very brain lives and he made the good point that it's good to do something with your body as well because your body wants it your body's actually made to do things um and it gets unhappy if you don't uh, you may not be conscious of it but it does and it's true exercise is very very good for you your head quite apart from anything else and it's a good way of clearing your mind or focusing it depending on circumstances so we, we used to go down several times a week to the gym there and i got into a habit of doing it dropped out dropped back in again over the years and since i started working with him again he kind of encouraged me to to pick it back up um and i got kind of over the pandemic i got on the fat side um not for the first time but i was kind of like a bit horrified at myself and i was like right, that's it I'm making a change so the last few times i've seen him i've been able to say you know check it out 
you know. Yeah, I've yeah. been working out at home and I'm going to a personal trainer and da 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 da, da. And uh, my wife's picking back up as well again. She went for the first time in a long time with me to the trainer today, which was great. Yeah, it is important in this sort of sedentary time, isn't it? Like I listened mm. to, I think it was Katie Bowman, she's a biomechanist, and she was saying, you know, being sedentary at your work isn't anything new. Like you had wood carvers and stuff hundreds of years ago, but the difference was there is still a physical life outside of that, whereas nowadays you go home and you maybe hunch over your phone or stuff. So it's, yeah. it's very it's very full on with this just crouch posture all day. So Well, I, I think that's why it became particularly sharp over pandemic time because, you know, you're staying in. I mean, I, I'd started on this years back when I started working from home, when I started freelancing all the time. Great, you know, don't have to go into the office, no commute just work from home and actually your body starts to kind of wither away because you're, you're not even walking the distance from you know the car park to your car or to the bus and then over from the bus stop and all the little things like that are no longer part of your daily routine and you know your body goes oh, all right then all we have to do is sit in a chair well you don't need legs for that do you and <laughs> it, it gets really pernicious um so yeah you kind of got to particularly watch it and of course the pandemic did that to everyone for a while so mm-hmm. I was a bit kind of prepared for it, but even I, you know, slipped into some bad habits. You start ordering in your food, you know, and you maybe don't eat proper things quite as much as you would because, hey, we've just got to stay in. So, yeah, very, very easy to get through it, get into a, a bad state through that. Yeah, I walk in those same trails over and over again. and <laughs> Walking is really there. great. Walking is a, a yeah. great solution for it. It really yeah. is. I'm not saying everyone should go to the gym. It's like, do what's right for you, really. I think it's the biggest message to take away from it. Uh, for a lot of people, walking is a great solution. Uh, I'm kind of a bit sad, really. We, we've got like a small nature reserve just at the end of our road, um, which was one of the, the draws about moving to where we are now and buying a house. But we hardly ever go up there because neither me or the wife are very much into walking. You know, it's, like, well, it's a bit sweaty. It's sweaty <laughs> and hard work sort of thing. Yeah, I, I find that walking is, is brilliant for sort of creative work too. Because you know, if you're if you're writing, mm. it, it, there's a good case that if you're writing something creative, a lot of the writing could be done away from the computer. Oh you God, know, you yeah, could go for absolutely. A walk and figure it out. And uh, I view my time as, you know, in front of the actual keyboard as you know, literally writing up the things that you're yeah. thinking about elsewhere. You're already clear on, yeah. Uh, and that that's another thing about working from home is that you have to kind of come to terms with just because you're not sitting at your desk, it doesn't mean you're not, you're not working. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be doing any number of different tasks, doing your, you know, doing the laundry or whatever, but your brain's churning along on the things that it's churning along on. So, um, yeah, and and walking's great for that because you can literally, you know, set your mind free while your body wanders about. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. If you enjoy the show, then please do share it with someone else you think might enjoy it too. And be sure to check out our Discord community of like-minded hobbyists, which you could find at bedroombattlefields.com forward slash discord. It'd be great to see you in there.